Welcome to Cloud9Fib, a podcast on all things leveraged finance. We follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distressed, and everything in between. I'm Josie Shillito, and today I am joined by Christine Ferris, Global Head of CLO Primary at JP Morgan. So, Christine is a pioneer in many senses of the word. In charge of JP Morgan's global CLO primary business, she oversees the issuance of both broadly syndicated and private credit CLOs, notably the recent pricing of private credit CLO Ivy Hill. She's also known for working with managers to launch debut CLO businesses. But that's not all. Christine's also making it easier for JP Morgan to support other rising stars with an active role in DEI. And she's a working mum of two boys. We are delighted to have her. Welcome, Christine. Thanks so much for having me, Josie. I'm an I'm a avid listener of Nine Fib Podcast, so I'm especially pleased to be here. Oh, I'm so pleased to welcome you then. Um, and now that we've got you, um, can you tell us a little more about Ivy, what we understand to be the first middle market CLO out of JP Morgan? Sure, I'd be happy to. So technically, we did a static deal for Interiors at the end of last year. It was one and a quarter billion dollar static issuance. But you're right, this was the first reinvesting private credit CLO um, that JP Morgan's issued. And it's uh, we've done deals with 150 issuers since 2013 and post-crisis. And this was our very first private credit CLO. So it was a really big deal internally. And frankly, for me personally, we really wanted it to go well. So we started working on the deal as soon as we got the mandate. We didn't even wait for the ink to dry on the engagement letter. We started working on it as soon as we got the verbal. And we wanted to make sure that, one, we were covering all the investors, but two, that we were bringing new investors on board and educating investors. We weren't complacent in, in, in just knowing, hey, these are the 50 investors that invest in private credit. We wanted to make sure that we were going to both tell the Ivy, Ivy Hill story, but also the, the private credit CLO story. So um, we traveled to Asia. We attended every conference and basically every single conversation I had starting in probably January of this year incorporated something about private credit CLOs, Ivy Hill, you know, trying to demystify private credit, um, things like that. And, um, you know, it was a it was a fantastic result. We were really proud of it. The deal was upsized from 400 to 475 million to meet investor demand. We set local private credit CLO tights across the capital stack. I know everyone's so focused on the AAA. The AAA print was, um, you know, the tight since Q1 at 245. And we issued a benchmark for non-call to structure um, versus some of the other deals in the market, which had some structural tweaks like make calls or shorter reinvestment periods. Um, so we're very happy about the structure. Um, and we were happy about just the, the investor mix. We had 26 unique investors to the deal from the US, Europe, and, and Asia, um, you know, a couple, couple countries in Asia, um, including 12 new investors to the Ivy Hill platform, which was a really important point for us. Um, and in the AAAs in particular, it was fully distributed. Uh, we had 11 accounts in there, including six new AAA investors. So we were really proud of the result um, and, and, you know, excited to, to make a splash in the private credit CLO market. What was your reason for entering this market? The thesis was pretty simple. Private credit is 
taking share from broadly syndicated loans. And so we thought private credit CLOs will take share from broadly syndicated loans. So I, I was always curious about private credit CLOs. I hadn't done one before. And I think it's always fun to do something slightly different, slightly new. It's upskilling for me. It's upskilling for my team. But the reality is, historically, it's only been about 10% of the market. And JP Morgan is always focused on being market leaders in everything we do. And private credit CLOs are slightly different game. You know, I think CLOs, broadly syndicated CLOs are more about the moving business, like how fast, not how fast, but how are you going to raise me money? What's the strategy? Who are you going to distribute to? Whereas private credit CLOs are a little bit different. They're a little bit more about storage and, and just getting financing for a slightly longer period. So I think historically, while I was curious about it, um, we were very focused on broadly syndicated, but given the the market share shift, um, we we definitely wanted to to get involved in private credit CLOs. Sure, and uh, we believe this year is on record to be a record-breaking year for middle market CLO issuance. Why is that? Yeah, I, you're right. From a percentage perspective, so far we're about 20% of the overall US CLO issuance is private credit. Um, 2021 was actually, I think, a, a huge year in CLOs overall. So we ha we saw 22 billion of private credit CLO new issue and about 20 billion of refis and resets. I think we're on track to about match that, which, you know, anytime you can compare anything from an issuance perspective to 2021, you're in a pretty good spot. And really just the highlight here is just the fact that uh, private credit CLOs are are going to be uh, really on track to be about 20% of the market versus about 10% historically um, in past issuance years. And in terms of why, I think that there are two main reasons. Um, you know, I'll throw a third one in there, but I think the two main reasons are one, demand for financing. So if you look at the private credit market, um, it's continued to grow, more capital has been raised uh, for the asset class. And with that capital comes a need for financing. So there are traditional forms of, of leverage like BDC, debt issuance or, um, you know, ABLs. But I think that um, as the private credit managers get bigger, they are um, incentivized and, and want to diversify their financing a little bit. And so we've seen um, these managers come and want to um, get more involved in CLOs and, and grow their CLO platforms. Um, I think the second reason is just demand from investors. So there's so much buzz around private credit. And, you know, I think that in past years, there were a lot of investors. We've distributed CLOs to over 700 investors in 2.0. And trust me, not all 700 of them are buying private credit. And I think in the past, people, you know, weren't as focused on it. We're very happy to stay in BSL. But now that there's a convergence in credit and more of the traditional BSL borrowers are moving into the private credit space, I think that the traditional BSL CLO investors are really focused on the asset class and really trying to better understand um, private credit CLOs. And frankly, I think that they're surprised to find that some of the misconceptions they may have had and some of the things that kept them away just aren't true. So for example, I think that some investors were nervous about private credit CLOs um, or less keen on them because there's this perception that 
there's less transparency. But the reality is you can sign an NDA and actually get more information on the individual credits than you would get from a regular way, broadly syndicated deal. In BSL, you might have price transparency, but you have other types of credit metrics that you get in private credit that you don't otherwise get um, in, in your average BSL deal. And so I think that as investors start to think more about private credit CLOs, they're realizing that it is a really interesting asset class. You do get a spread pickup and um, they're getting more comfortable. So I think we're seeing demand um, both for the financing, but also from investors, which is why I think that it'll it'll continue to um, be a bigger, bigger portion of the um, overall CLO issuance. The last thing is the ARB works better. So it's all about the numbers. And you know, everyone's talking about how CLO ARB is really tough. There's not enough excess spread. It's really tough to issue. There's not enough return for equity, but there's just excess spread, more excess spread, I should say, in private credit CLOs. So just to throw some um, numbers out there, if you think about the, the average broadly syndicated deal, and I'm just going to throw kind of round numbers. If the weighted average cost of debt is 250, the spread on the um, underlying pool is something like 350, and maybe a little bit higher than that. But you have a about 100 basis points or 120 basis points of excess spread there, 10 times levered. So you're thinking about like a low teens, maybe high single digit return. Um, on the PCLO side, there's a little bit more variability in the weighted average spread of the underlying portfolio, but we've often seen deals come with 550 spread where the weighted average cost of debt is closer to 350. So you, right there, you have called 200 bips of excess spread. So you're looking at more like a, you know, high teens to 20% return, which is um, a much better and, and more organic place for CLO equity investors. That's very interesting. And I wonder if you could help me understand just for the uninitiated, is there any difference between a private credit CLO and a middle market CLO? Yeah, yes and no. Um, so so on one hand, it's just it's just rebranding. Um, I think when JP Morgan first started getting into this space, we had fresh eyes and you know, we we historically called what we're now calling private credit CLOs, middle market CLOs. And when we first started working on these transactions, what we realized is, hey, actually the underlying collateral is no longer middle market. Maybe 10 years ago, people were writing loans and then securitizing loans to smaller EBITDA companies, 15 to 25 million EBITDA companies. And don't get me wrong, that still happens. And there's still a subset of the private credit CLO market that's focused on the smaller EBITDA companies. But the biggest managers are just getting bigger. And the reality is the check sizes they're writing are getting bigger. And, you know, it just follows that the companies that they're writing those checks to are getting bigger. So if you look at the biggest issuers in the PCLO market, they're really focused on anywhere from call it the 75 million EBITDA to all the way up to call it the 150 million EBITDA company. So we no longer felt like that was just middle market securitizations. Um, we felt like private credit was a broader term and it kind of better captured what was actually happening in the market. And it's very much um, reflecting the terminology used for the, the underlying deals as well. Um, so that makes uh, very much sense. And you've spoken about the huge scope uh, for private credit CLOs in the US. Um, I recall also at the Global AABS conference in Barcelona this year, you spoke about the opportunity for private credit CLOs in Europe. Can you tell me a bit more about your view on that? 
yeah, I think it's happening. And I know that there's a lot of debate about whether it's happening, if it can happen, what the hurdles are. But I, I do think it's happening. And the reality is it may not end up looking the way that you expect it to look. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think people are expecting one day for someone to blah, 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 announcing European private credit CLO for such and such manager priced and, and all that kind of stuff. I think it's going to end up being a little more incremental. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think that um, what we'll see is first we'll see a private unrated deal with CLO mechanics, but none of the underlying is rated because that costs money. Then maybe we'll see private rated deals where it's not announced broadly in the market, but there's a bank that finances and it's better for them to hold a rated piece of 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 paper. Um, and so you'll get a rating on it, but it's not broadly distributed in the market. And then maybe you'll see a two tranche structure that is broadly distributed. And then maybe you'll see after that a, a deal that has more tranches, but it's rated by a rating agency that isn't one of the major three rating agencies. So I think that there's all these alternatives as we figure out exactly what the market's going to look like for um, kind of baby steps with with PCLO issuance in Europe. Um, and I, I think that it'll eventually culminate in, um, you know, a manager coming to market more broadly. Um, and I think that when that does happen, I think there, there will be good um, investor interest for it. And can you tell me a little bit about how pricing works? Yeah, I love talking about pricing comps because that's so much of what we do in, in CLO New Issue. Um, so I, I think that it's it's kind of easy right now because the U.S. and Europe are trading pretty flat as far as AAAs are concerned. Uh, it's in and around 170. Um, things are tier one. The tight end of the spectrum is pricing at 170 in Europe. It's at 170 in the U.S. going maybe to 165. But just for simplicity, let's call it 170. If you look at private credit CLOs, it's trading in and around, call it 250. So I think that the natural response would be to say, hey, European private credit CLOs should then trade at 250 because the US and European AAA markets, BSL, roughly flat, private credit should be roughly flat. But I actually don't think that that would be the right answer. And I say that um, for two reasons. Um, the first is some of the most active AAA buyers are banks. You know, I, I think historically about 60% of the investor base just across CLOs um, for AAAs have been banks. Um, and I think that those banks find private credit lending just a very natural spot. So if you look at the private credit U.S. deals that get done, actually a lot of the investors that end up coming into those deals are European banks. And they're coming in for two reasons. One, they um, want the excess spread pickup that you get for private credit over broadly syndicated deals. And two, I think that they need Euro compliance. And most of the U.S. private credit CLOs that are done are euro compliant or risk retention compliant so they're they're eligible to buy that that paper and so i think that um to the extent that those deals are issued in europe those same banks would be even more asked to buy because when they buy in their local currency they're not going to have to swap it back um using cross-currency swaps so i think that right now where it stands those cross-currency swaps cost about 40 basis points so even if you're buying a private credit CLO in the U.S. at 250, you're actually receiving closer to 200, 210, whatever the number is after you swap it. So I think that they would be very keen, especially because there's going to be scarcity value in the beginning, to buy these European private credit CLOs, even if it is slightly tighter than 250. And what's your view on ratings considerations? 
Yeah. So I think that in Europe, unlike the U.S., there are two ratings down the stack. So it's just a regulatory requirement that you have to get um, two ratings. In the U.S., you just have to, to really get one. And it's not a regulatory thing. It's just kind of what the in investors demand. In Europe, you need to get two, which means that um, you will likely have less leverage in the European CLOs, um, private credit CLOs, than you do in the U.S. private credit deals. So that's kind of the first ratings consideration. And uh, of course, to the extent that you have less leverage, it, it means that your cap structure is going to get more expensive because you're less levered. Um, and then I think the biggest uh, driver or consideration from the ratings perspective is just going to be diversity. Um, so I think that things are um, just a little bit, I think originations is a little bit slower in Europe. I think it takes a little bit longer to accumulate assets. So as we talk to potential European private credit CLO managers, they're very focused on getting enough diversity um, to, to, to get these tranches rated. And I think that, you know, diversity is part of the rating agency criteria. So to the extent that something's slightly less diverse, the rating agencies know how to account for that and, and, and can rate accordingly. But at a certain point, it just becomes inefficient. So, you know, I think 50 assets, call it, is fine. Once you get down to under, call it, 30 assets, it becomes a little bit tougher. It just starts getting a little less efficient. Um, so I think diversity is going to be something that we're very, very focused on. And the second thing is just currency. So in the U.S., most of the stuff that we put into the private credit CLOs is going to be dollar de denominated. Of course, that's not the case in Europe. In Europe, um, you do have um, multi-currency um, assets, right? You have euro, you have sterling. And so I think that the from a rating agency perspective, on one hand, you can issue multi-currency CLO tranches but it gets a little bit messy and, and the rating agencies do, do apply stressage, which affect your leverage. Um, you can also address it with perfect asset swaps, which highly rated banks like JP Morgan do provide, where you can just swap um, the, the currency kind of within the, within the structure. And are there any other obstacles, do you think, to bringing this market to Europe or have we, uh, have we touched on the main ones just there? I think we touched on the main ones. Um, I, I think the last one is just the there are plenty of other financing options. You know, the size of the European market is smaller than you, the U.S., but there are just as many, if not more, banks offering financing over there. Um, I think lending to, to SMEs is just part of the DNA for European banks. So they're all very keen to lend and, and lend at really attractive terms to to the, the private credit managers. So I think that the, the major obstacle is just figuring out um, how to make CLOs more efficient. And I think there are enough managers that want to build out CLO capabilities as just an alternative way of financing that maybe the first deals are a push. They're not more efficient. They're equally efficient um, just to kind of get the business up and running. Um, but I, I do think that, um, you know, just the fact that there's so much other financing currently, and frankly, I think in Europe, um, you know, managers just take on a little bit less leverage than they do in the U.S. So, you know, if the market's estimated to be a, a trillion dollar market in the U.S., maybe two thirds of the money raised is raised with leverage. In Europe, it's maybe a 400 you know, billion euro market. And it's kind of the opposite. Maybe only a third is raised with leverage. So you're starting with a smaller market and of that smaller market, less of it is raised with the intent, you know, to get to get leverage. Um, so I, I think that that's kind of another um, obstacle. Interesting. And the entry of this into the European market could change very much the shape of the existing private credit uh, space. Can you tell me a little bit about ways that might 
happen or the influence that that a greater number, a greater volume of um, CLOs might have on the European private credit market? Yeah, I think there's a lot of motivation from from the both the manager and the dealer community and frankly, the investor community as well to get the European private credit CLO market up and running. Um, I, I think in terms of impact, it'll just ironically, it'll bring publicity to, to an otherwise quite private space. So I think there's a lot of buzz right now in publicity around private credit as an asset class, but it takes something that's, you know, squarely in the private sphere and, and makes it just slightly more in the public sphere vis-a-vis um, -vis issuance and, and I, capital markets activity. I, as a journalist in private credit, I would absolutely uh, love that. A little bit more transparency <laughs> would make my job so much more easy. But um, I'm really uh, in awe of how uh, you're approaching this challenge at uh, the same time as being uh, so involved in DEI at JP Morgan. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about your work on this? Because um, it's a very important part of, uh, of any company um, to have this uh, well-developed and well-understood. Yeah, sure. This is something I'm really passionate about. I've always felt like the best idea should win. It shouldn't be about your gender, or the color of your skin. It should be about being ethical, being smart, working hard and, and just getting things done and getting them done in the best way you know how. So as an analyst um, in sales and trading at JP Morgan, I noticed that the analysts in banking had a network called Junior Women in Banking. And I basically asked senior management, hey, can we have something in markets, junior women in markets for analysts and associates here? And they were fully supportive. We put a pitch deck together and in almost no time at all, they gave us a budget and helped us start this network for analysts, associate women in, junior, in, um, in sales and trading. And then once I became a VP, we noticed that, you know, VP is a very special and pivotal time in in people's careers. Um, I think that you're getting more responsibility at work, you're getting more responsibility at home, and there's just a lot changing. And frankly, it's when we saw a lot of women, um, you know, kind of start to think about alternatives and, and, and maybe um, it, it's just very pivotal. Uh, so we started the Vice President Women's Network, and it's been very full circle because I'm now the senior sponsor for the Vice President Women's Network, and I'm really excited to bring bring some ideas and and kind of get back involved in VPN, but as the, the senior sponsor there. And um, in a senior position, uh, what advice would you give to more junior people starting out in their career in finance, male or female? Yeah, in a lot of ways, I'm so lucky to work at JP Morgan because it's such an amazing company. And you know, the brand carries so much weight. So I think that they can take risks on people and they want to take risks on people. So it's very much part of the culture that we promote from within, we bring up young people, um, etc. And so I think that JP Morgan was able to take a risk on me when I first started, um, you know, running syndicate in 2013 for CLOs. Every one of my competitors um, was a pre-crisis MD and I was I think at the time of VP, um, but I think at JP, they saw something in me and they they gave me an opportunity that, you know, frankly, maybe I didn't even see that in myself. So, you know, I think that the advice that I would give for um, people starting their career is, you know, when you're young in your career, there's only so much you can control. You go from being at the top of the world, the pinnacle of your academic career as a, a senior in, in college or university, then you come and you're surrounded by people that have 
so much more work experience and you don't necessarily come in with a built-in network and you just feel like you have so much less control. But the advice that I would give is the one thing that you can control is yourself and your own attitude. And so, you know, come in with a good attitude, look for opportunities to learn and just take comfort in the fact that everyone starts that way. And then the first year is probably the hardest and it just gets easier, better and more fun from there. Um, and then the other piece of advice that I would give to people starting their career is if somebody gives you an opportunity or asks you to step up for something, you should think long and hard before turning that down. And what I mean by that is if somebody is asking you to join them, it probably means that they see something in you and they know exactly what they want out of that role. So I think that you're more likely to succeed to the extent that you know, someone's asking you and they've already vetted you and, and in their mind confirmed that you're the perfect person for the job. And so I think that that was a lot of my story. I didn't necessarily go and, and look and seek out bigger roles constantly, but I always really worked hard. And, and um, you know, anytime someone gave me an opportunity, I looked at it as, um, you know, always taking risks, but um, understanding that they saw something in me for the role that maybe I didn't even see in myself. Yeah, that's 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 a really interesting perspective I think that um you could have a champion there already without knowing it and and to to use it as such um, and that's great advice to anyone uh, climbing the corporate ladder obviously um you are a mother of two um boys uh, if you weren't busy enough um and when we uh, had some of the 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 call prep for this uh, podcast um i learned about uh, your rather unique childcare setup and um, would you mind sharing because i think this is a fascinating way to do it and I, I wish more of us could do it this way yeah you know being a working mom isn't easy and i i don't know if i can call it a childcare setup so much as like a mommy care setup you know really is just what keeps me sane but um i i'm I'm really lucky in my family life. You know, I live in Manhattan. My parents live in New Jersey where I grew up. So they're about like a 30 minute car right away. My husband's parents live in Long Island. Um, they're about an hour and a half away. My husband's an amazing father. And then I actually, when I was pregnant with my first, moved into the same building on the same floor as my older sister, who's just amazing. Like she is just the best big sister. I'm so lucky we've been close my whole life and you know she takes such good care of me and it's just it makes life so much easier you know like last year our two sons were my older son and her son were in the same preschool so on mornings where I was busy or I had to get in really early my sister would take my son to school or if she was busy I would take her son to school and it's just like a lovely way for our kids to grow up but it's also just so nice for me to have um, you know my best friend and confidant just two doors down. I am so jealous of that setup. Um, if I could move a close family in, not, you know, not into my house, but just just the <laughs> corridor, as you're saying, um, I absolutely would, because uh, I think it's it's just that knowledge that if you drop the ball, which we all do, you know, there's a bit of a safety and security blanket there. And I think that really helps to be able to to focus and have the energy to turn to a job as well. So I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, so in all, it's been an utter pleasure to talk um, both about the development of the private credit CLA market in the US and potentially in Europe anytime soon. And to just understand a little bit more about the challenges of getting to the level that you're at and all the wonderful things that you're doing now that you're there. So it's been great to have you on this podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure, a pleasure chatting again. And hopefully we can 
stay in touch. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's been, uh, it's been fun. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And please let us know if you have any feedback. You can reach us anytime by emailing team at ninefin.com. And check in next week to hear the latest on US markets with our colleague, Will Kasia-Smith. And we'll be back the week after that. See you then.